Okay, hi everybody. We're going to get started. Um, we are going to pick back up in procedural fairness today. And what I want to do is start off um, with a sort of side issue that there isn't really a very obvious place to explain this. It's come up in um, a discussion I had at a break already. Uh, but it's something that we all need to be on the same page about. And it, um, it's, a, it's sort of a conceptual idea we all need to know in order to appreciate how these decisions go. And when we get to some of the ideas of um, deference, including deference on procedure, which is a tricky concept we touched on a bit today, it's important to have in mind this concept of how stare decisis resonates with administrative tribunals. And it starts with this proposition that can be quite unsatisfying, which is that tribunals are not, as a general rule, unless there's something that says otherwise in a statute, are not going to be bound by their own decisions in the same way that a court is. And that means that the administrative decision maker, the body, may be able to make two decisions that result in completely opposite substantive outcomes by interpreting the same statute in different ways in different cases. And it is possible that both of those interpretations will be reasonable and both be deferred to by the courts. So you could have two people bring the same problem to the same tribunal, get two completely opposite outcomes, and the court might bless both of those outcomes. That is one of the things that is most frustrating for people who take a, um, you know, a strong rule of law framing towards administrative law and get upset about the way administrative tribunals can feel to undermine the rule of law as a broad project. And you can imagine that if you are a individual and you know that somebody else got the exact opposite decision from you from the same tribunal, you might start to question well, what law is in charge here? How is this, how is the law allow both these outcomes to happen? I had a very, and it can be a, a feature of administrative law that can uh, be abused, to be honest. I may have mentioned this before. If I did, I apologize, but I think it's worth reiterating here. I once did a case that involved um, mobile home, a mobile home park. And the mobile home park had a landlord um, who, you know, I suspect is motivated by a desire to increase the rents, that they could have a bigger rent increase if a new person brought their mobile home into this park. And so was evicting longer term tenants. And the landlord was evicting longer term tenants on the basis of the same theory, the same interpretation of the um, Mobile Home Park Act, I believe it's called, and was taking that to the residential tenancy branch who oversees that act the same way it oversees the Residential Tenancy Act and was losing on that argument, losing on that argument, losing on that argument, then won on that argument, then lost on that argument, then won again on that argument. 
So you had five different people in the same mobile home park with the same lease, with the same grounds for eviction. Five of them challenged it at the residential tenancy branch. Three of them were allowed to stay by, by the residential tenancy branch. Two of them were told the eviction's proper and it must stand. It's the exact same wording of the, like their leases signed on different dates, but it's the same lease and the same argument was made each time. You can see how that's just intuitively a really unhappy outcome. But why does the law allow administrative decision makers to, um, you know, potentially have that result of inconsistent outcomes? And there's a few reasons behind it. One is these are extremely high volume tribunals. And to expect decision makers to be able to have a consistency of decision at all times may be unrealistic and may significantly slow down the process. Another basis is just theoretical, that the court's job is to oversee the exercise of these statutory powers. And so long as both exercises are reasonable, the courts haven't seen a theoretical basis to step in. Neither interpretation is outside of the conceivable scope of jurisdiction, so therefore they both can stand. Now, this problem I'm flagging here, and we're going to see it is addressed in the Vavilov decision, and I think we're at a much happier place than we were pre-Vavilov on this particular issue. But the bottom line is you want to know that as a general rule, unless the statute says otherwise, starting point is admin tribunals are not bound by their own precedence. I have to say a third reason for this is also that we want these tribunals to be able to change and evolve as needs change in the world. So starting point is you're not bound by your own precedence, absent statutory direction otherwise. And this can result in inconsistent decisions at the tribunal level. So that's your, the first point you want to have. The second point is, well, how does this interact with judicial review and when the courts get involved? Because your um, starting point there is that courts are bound by stare decisis. And in essence, there's what's called vertical stare decisis. Higher courts decisions you are bound by and you don't have the discretion or ability as a lower court judge to refuse to follow those decisions. That's a violation of stare decisis. There's a few exceptions, but we're not going to bother getting into that right now general proposition, you're bound by higher court decisions. And furthermore, you're expected to follow decisions of the same court unless there's an overwhelmingly good reason not to do so. That's called horizontal stare decisis. There's a case that I don't know if you touch on because it's, it's so important for practice, but it doesn't fit comfortably into any particular subject matter. You might want to jot it down. It's called Hansard Spruce Mills, and it sets out the rules for horizontal stare decisis. I don't think you need to know it for this course, if you just get the idea that generally you should follow decisions uh, by the same court. 
BC Supreme Court should follow BC Supreme Court decisions. But you know, it may come up in your practice, maybe the summer or in the fall, and uh, you may want to uh, remember that if you're thinking about the question of the BC Supreme Court being bound by its own decisions, that's the Hansard's Bruce Mills principle. You argue it a lot in as a lawyer, and you don't mention it much in law school. Just thought I'd raise that. Leaving that little aside, the way that the court's stare decisis intersects with the admin tribunal's ability to depart from their own decisions is interesting, a little bit nuanced, but kind of makes sense when you think it through logically. So I've just imagined here, I've got four RTB decisions. Let's say it's my trailer park case. And so this one is an eviction. This one is uh, you know no eviction. This one's an eviction. This one's no eviction. So imagine that the unhappy evicted person brings a judicial review to the residence or the BC Supreme Court, I should say, and the BC Supreme Court agrees and says that this interpretation of the Residential Tenancy Act that led you to this eviction was unreasonable. Get sent back to the RTB for redetermination. They decide it some other way. Now, let's say that then this person gets evicted on the same grounds as that person did. They bring a judicial review to the BC Supreme Court. The BC Supreme Court is going, and maybe they argue, you know, that this interpretation was rejected in these two cases. Well, the BC Supreme Court's going to say, I don't care about these two. I care about whether the basis that you were evicted on is unreasonable. But the BC Supreme Court is going to be bound not by these decisions, but by their own decision deciding that that interpretation was unreasonable. So you're going to get the same result here that's going to be sent back to the RTB. So in practice, court decisions can bind administrative decisions going forward and lead to some consistency and predictability. But let's imagine a different factual situation where um, one of the people who wasn't evicted has the landlord apply to the residential tenancy branch and say it was you know, unreasonable it was to interpret me as not able to evict on this basis. Let's say the BC Supreme Court says, I disagree. It was reasonable to interpret the residential tenancy branch as not able to evict on that basis. That was a reasonable interpretation. Okay, so just a new scenario, getting rid of these ones. So it goes, you are evicted, or you, sorry, you're not evicted. You go up to the BC Supreme Court. BC Supreme Court says not evicting you, interpreting as not evicting you, was reasonable in the circumstances. Okay, nothing gets sent back. We've got a BC Supreme Court decision interpreting the no eviction 
approach to this is reasonable. This person is evicted, and we're in a new world now. That previous case hadn't happened. They apply to the BC Supreme Court, and they feel pretty excited, right? They say, well, this person wasn't evicted, and you interpreted that person not being evicted as reasonable, so surely I'm going to get the same result from the BC Supreme Court, aren't I? And this is where it gets troublesome. Not necessarily. All they've said is not evicting you was reasonable. They haven't said it was correct or it was the only reasonable interpretation. So conceivably, they could say, well, yes, not evicting somebody in your exact same circumstances was reasonable, but you could also reasonably interpret this law as allowing this eviction. So we are going to defer to that judgment then we are going to find that both of these decisions are reasonable. And then they, in essence, endorse the, um, uh, the inconsistency here. So it's a, it's a tricky, nuanced question. But what you have to think of, in essence, is once the BC Supreme Court has decided something you know, cannot be, that is going to be binding going forward. Once they've said something is reasonable, that's not necessarily going to foreclose other reasonable interpretations for being applied going forward. So it's a, you know, tricky and get somewhat unsatisfying. I kind of want to put a pin in that a bit for now, unless there's you know specific questions about how I explain that. Yeah. Um, when something is unreasonable in judicial review, do you have to then judicially review the other decisions that use that logic, or is there some like internal mechanism that allows the That's a great question, and the answer is unsatisfyingly, you would have to judicially review those almost certainly unless the tribunal had some statutory power to go reconsider their decisions, because otherwise they'd be functus, they'd be, their jurisdiction is spent on this decision. And it's unsatisfying, but it's the, it is the same result as happens uh, when you know, even a law is declared unconstitutional by a higher court. Previous decisions relying on that law do still stand unless there's some way to revisit them. So that's a, um, that's a really great question. So, there can be tribunals with reconsideration powers, and they may say, okay, great, you know, we now know that this was not within our jurisdiction, so we have to go change all these things. That's not gonna happen necessarily. Yeah, that's a good question. Okay, so um, I hope this is, you kind of get the idea, and I hope it's a little bit troubling. Um, we are gonna revisit it when we come back to Vavilov. Um, but I want you to just have this framework in mind because it starts to uh, get harder to understand some of the decisions if you don't have in mind really how tribunals are not bound by their own decisions and how the court sort of intersects with that process, um, at least at a conceptual level. All right, um, so I'm going to move on from the admin law and stare decisis point. I'm going to quickly, before we get into Baker, I'm going to just revisit the questions of legitimate expectations and fettering because they're, they are concepts that I find um, everybody has a hard time with. 
Um, and it doesn't get all that much easier if we just jump into Baker and we start to try to situate the doctrine of legitimate expectations within these Baker factors. So I want to just once again, just take one step back and think again about how these two doctrines operate and how they intersect. And the, the first thing you want to really be totally clear on is these are doctrines that um, apply when you don't have a statute that is directing something to happen in the sense that you don't have a clear statutory guidance um, you know, that, that something must happen to create a legitimate expectation. Or with the case of fettering, you know, what you have is a, a statute that's provided some, some scope of discretion and you have a tribunal trying to grapple with how to, how to administer that discretion. And so, again, the, the concept of fettering is the one that I'm just going to start with because it, it does get quite tricky. But the idea of fettering is that if you are given a statutory power, a statutory discretion to exercise, you're expected to fully exercise that statutory power. and not refuse to consider a component of your, of your power, not to refuse to uh, be willing to exercise some part of that power. So it can come up in any number of ways, some of which really directly tie towards legitimate expectations. And I'm just going to use an example of, um, I mentioned how you can create a substantive legitimate expectation last class. That's the idea where the tribunal tells you ahead of time, hey, expect that building permit next Saturday. You know, it, it's looking good for you. You get this expectation that something's coming your way. This could give rise to greater procedural duties if that substantive expectation is not fulfilled. But I also said a substantive legitimate expectation doesn't mean you get that substantive outcome. It only means you're going to get more procedural protections if they're going to change that substantive outcome. And here's where it ties back into fettering. If I were to say to you, look, I haven't made my final decision yet, but you better count on it. You're getting that, that um, that permit next week. Well, you can think about, you know, I have the scope of discretion to grant that permit. There's a range of relevant considerations I'm expected to take into account when making that decision. What happens if something new arises in the interim between when I say that and when I'm supposed to issue the permit? Should I say, oh, I can't consider that. I can't change my mind because I've already told this person they're getting the permit. You know, and the answer is no, you can't because that would fetter your discretion. You've, given, you've been given this broad discretion to make this decision at this time on the basis of these considerations. And if one of those considerations arises, you know, properly in the due course, you're expected to consider it, integrate it into your decision, 
and not be bound by what you might have previously led someone to expect is going to happen. So that's where the law steps in and says there will be a procedural remedy. If this kind of thing comes up, you go to the person, you tell them something new has come up, you give them a chance to address it, but you don't consider yourself bound by your previous statement. You know, you have to exercise your full discretion when the time comes. And we're going to see this quite a bit more when we go through the bias chapter, which is for Wednesday next week. The bias chapter gets into a lot of concepts that sort of transcend bias and, and raise other interesting points as well. And one of them is this tension between trying to deal with all of this inconsistency you can get at the tribunal level through issuing guidelines to tribunal members, having some guidance, some internal guidance, some leading decisions that you tell your members you should really be following. The tension between tribunals trying to tackle this inconsistency through guidelines and other soft, you know, soft law type concepts and on the other hand, not fettering their discretion by unduly limiting the scope of what they're allowed to decide. So this is the concept we're going to see in the book. You know, how do tribunals get consistency without avo while avoiding fettering the discretion of the decision makers? So it's a um, concept that comes up again. I don't want to go too much farther into this, but I just think this, these ideas get, get very tricky. We're coming back to legitimate expectations in a second. Um, or actually probably after the break when we get through Baker. Uh, but I just wanted to raise these again and maybe open up for any questions that are coming on those ideas at this point. Yeah. Sorry, can you just clarify when you said these are relevant? Like when you, you said there was, because there was no clear statutory guidance, can you just expand on that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this is with legitimate expectations, I mean, maybe I misspoke a little bit by tying that to fettering as directly. This is really probably most directly the concept to think of for legitimate expectations. Um, and what I mean there is to step back into legitimate expectations. This is the idea that the tribunal may not have to do something, but they may make you think they're going to do something by being clear and direct in their you know, statement to that effect. And in the absence of direct statutory guidance that they must do that, or something directly saying they can't do that, which would resolve the, the question, this is when you get into the question of legitimate expectations. You know, I, I, sh I, was, I think I did misspeak in really tying it into fettering, because fettering is sort of a little bit more, not in the absence of direct statutory guidance, but is tied to um, recognizing the scope of your statutory authority. So I think that that's a, a good question and probably a, mis, a misstatement by me. And a, I think hopefully that is maybe a better framing to have in our minds. You know, if you have um, a range of, of statutory discretion, you have to be careful not to fetter your discretion. And you have to recognize that um, you know, your conduct could give rise to legitimate expectations. Yeah. Just to clarify, so if, um, 
the statute says you must do something or you can't do something. Yeah. Legitimate expectations can arise because the statute says what's going to happen. So if the statute says you must or can't do something, you have to do it. The doctrine of legitimate expectations doesn't arise here because um, you've got a statutory answer. So, you know, to think, um, I should probably put this on the board one more time too. You've got really these three sources of procedural fairness that we've talked about before uh, last class. And today we're going to talk about common law sources of procedural fairness through Baker. And these ones, uh, when you find something that says you get or don't get a particular procedural right here, these ones are just going to bind you. They're going to be binding. No question. Like, no questions asked. Predictable, binding clear statutes and regulations, if the answer is there, you don't have to look much farther. Soft law, which are you know, guidelines coming from the tribunal, are really a wide array of documents that could give rise to somebody's um, expectations before a tribunal. And the common law we're going to talk about here give rise to much less predictable outcomes. And these are the areas where we're going to spend, you know, frankly, the most amount of time, again, because it's where there's the most nuance, things get the most difficult. But the statutes and regulations will be a complete answer if you can find something in there. So when you're thinking about legitimate expectations, things like that, you don't really have to go into those documents, into those doctrines, if you could find your answer in a statute or regulation. Okay. Any other questions? That was a good one. I, this is a tricky area to get conceptually sort of framed, and um, you know, I think I haven't done the best job uh, this morning of getting stuff on a good foot, to be honest. So I um, hopefully we can we can power through um, because it, a lot of the concepts you will see this in Baker. A lot of the concepts sort of bleed into each other, and the frameworks are not maybe as um, you know sort of rigorously delineated into different categories as we might like. There's things that sort of bleed from one category into another. We'll see this when we get through the Baker factors quite a bit. Um, but, you know, we have, um, I think that to focus on just sort of the, the big level, the high level ideas and, you know, hopefully um, the, the framing sort of comes together as we go through these things with the recognition that the law isn't always totally crystal clear on these things. All right, with that vagueness, let's um, let's get into Baker and hopefully this starts to get more concrete as we get drilled into this case. Um, Baker is a tremendously important case. Um, when it was released, uh, Professor David Dysonhaus and Professor Evan Fox Decent wrote the Supreme Court of Canada's decision in Baker in Canada is the most important decision in Canadian administrative law in 20 years. Madam Justice Claire LaRue-Dubay's judgment for the court puts Baker in the pantheon of great administrative law judgments, one occupied until now by two decisions of the court, uh, QP and New Brunswick Liquor Corp. Uh, we'll talk about that case later. 
Uh, Nicholson and Hellman, we'll talk about that later also. Both those cases have been largely overtaken by Vavilov. And they say Rand's judgment and Ron Corelli and Duplessis. So right, at the, right away, this case is issued. The scholars say this one is extremely important. And this is on the level of, you know, uh, Ron Corelli and Duplessis. And they're right. They've, they've been proven absolutely right. This case has stood the test of time, remains uh, extremely widely cited. When I looked this up a couple years ago, it was the third most cited decision in Canadian Supreme Court history. You know, not just admin law, everything. So Baker's a really important case to know. It's written by Justice Claire Leroux Dubay, um, who you probably are familiar with, but she was quite a uh, influential jurist. She sort of occupied the role in the court that Justice Cote occupies today, where Justice Leroux Dubay was a prolific dissenter. Um, but her dissents have gained traction over the years, and many of them have become the law. And indeed, her reasons in Baker, you know, not in dissent, in majority, are um, obviously of extremely high importance. So let's get into Baker and talk a little bit about, you know, the, the facts of the case. I think it's important to have this story in your mind because it will maybe help crystallize the case, help it be more memorable. And then also so we can see how these factors get applied to this particular circumstance. So we have Miss Baker, and Miss Baker um, is not a citizen. And what status she had to legally be in Canada had expired. So she was in a situation where she did not have legal status in Canada. And what she wanted was a humanitarian and compassionate grounds exemption from the ordinary rule that if you didn't have legal status in Canada, if you wanted to apply for permanent residency, you had to do so from outside of Canada. So that was the ordinary rule. If you're in Canada and you don't have legal status, we're not going to let you just stay here to apply for permanent residency. Rather, we're going to expect you to you know, presumably go to whatever country you'd, uh, you have legal status in and make the application from there. Ms. Baker uh, is well represented uh, with medical professionals helping her and some legal professionals helping her. Uh, obviously not always the case for people in sort of marginal circumstances such as she had. But she puts together an application for humanitarian and compassionate relief to allow her to apply for permanent residency while still in Canada. The basis upon which she acts, or, or she makes this application, is she explains that she has um, four children born in Canada. Two of them rely on her as a primary caregiver. Two others rely on her for emotional support. And she has had a, um, you know, a mental health uh, issue where she had, I believe it was called postpartum psychosis following the birth of her, um, it was actually her eighth total child, but her fourth child in Canada. And then she was diagnosed as paranoid, having uh, paranoid schizophrenia as well. This had made her unable to work. She had been working as a domestic worker, uh, domestic help. 
And so she relied on Canadian medical treatment to help with her, um, you know, her conditions. And she was providing for her family. So she applies to the um, Immigration and Refugee Board. because she has been ordered to be deported on the basis that her visa had expired. And she applied to the humanitarian, or to the Immigration Refugee Board for a humanitarian and compassionate exemption to allow her to stay in Canada to make her application for permanent residency. And she had a lawyer, a doctor, and a social worker write letters to support her application. So this was a, um, you know, a, a lengthy, um, set of documents that were provided to the immigration board, supported by professional opinion, professionally prepared. And the documents set out that, you know, she had these problems, but she was getting better. Her mental health problems were improving, and they would certainly deteriorate. It could be reasonably expected if she was sent back to Jamaica, where she was from. Also, you know, the, the letters set out the support that she provides to her family and how much they rely on her. So it's not just her at issue, but it's these four Canadian citizens who also rely on her. So what does she get? She gets a letter from the Immigration and Refugee Board that in essence says, your application for humanitarian and compassionate grounds for relief from this rule is refused. Period, signed, that's it. One piece of paper, no explanation, and there's no right of appeal. It's the final determination. You're not allowed to stay in Canada. So what does she do? Well, thankfully, she had the legal assistance, right, to be able to quickly act. And she acts by bringing an application for judicial review. This goes to federal court. Immigration is a federal matter. And as part of this judicial review process, she requests the file that was before the decision maker. That's a part of the process available in federal court. We'll talk about that more at the end of the course. But you can demand the record that was before the decision maker when they made their decision. And this is where you find, you know, the sort of shocking part of this decision in my reading, which is the, the notes from an immigration officer. And this immigration officer, uh, G. Lorenz, was not the person who signed the letter saying Miss Baker has to leave. It was another immigration officer. But he wrote these notes to file, and I'll, I'll read them. So included in the notes, he writes, this case is a catastrophe, which he misspells. It is also an indictment of our system, and he puts system in these quotes, that the client came here as a visitor in August 81 and was not ordered deported until December 92 and in all caps, April 94 is still here. The PC is a paranoid schizophrenic and on welfare. She has no qualifications other than as a domestic. 
She has, back to all caps, four children in Jamaica and other four born here. She will, of course, be a tremendous strain on our social welfare system for probably the rest of her life. There are no agency factors other than her, all caps, four Canadian-born children. Do we let her stay because of that? I'm of the opinion that Canada can no longer afford this type of generosity. However, because of the circumstances involved, there is a potential for adverse publicity. I recommend refusal, but you may wish to clear this with someone at Region. So these are the notes found in the file from this Officer G. Lorenz, who you could probably find in the comments section these days. And what happens next? Well, go to federal court and say, look at these, look at these notes. This is ridiculous. There is something untoward happening underneath in this decision-making process. Bring a judicial review, and they say, I've got three problems here. One, knowing what you knew about this circumstance, you should have given Ms. Baker an oral hearing. You should have heard from her before you told her she can't stay in the country. The second thing they argue on judicial review is that we need written reasons for the denial of this humanitarian and compassionate request. And the third thing she said is I need an unbiased decision maker, which I, I didn't get. This works its way up. Um, you know, imagine this is the federal court system diagram on a board, but it goes to the federal court, the federal court of appeal, ultimately to the Supreme Court of Canada. And the Supreme Court of Canada goes through these, um, these questions and ultimately, uh, as we'll see, concludes that um, you know, she, she did have a problem with a biased decision maker and grants relief. But in the course of doing so, they set out these five factors which are to be considered when assessing a question of whether a particular duty of procedural fairness is owed to an individual in any circumstance. And that is what is so important about Baker, is these five factors. And to be clear, there's a whole second issue about uh, whether reasons are required, we'll talk about, which would make Baker an important case in its own right. But when people say Baker, they're really talking about these five factors and the quote-unquote Baker test that comes out of that. Now, I don't love calling this the Baker test because as we'll go through these factors, we'll see that the, some of them are a little bit qualitatively different in what they're getting at. And it isn't really that all these factors push and pull against each other. Rather, they're kind of the Baker considerations might be a better way to think of it. And I think that's the way Justice LaRue Dubé phrases it, is these are the considerations that are important. But we will see that ultimately, looking at these different considerations can build an argument that you should be entitled to more and more procedural fairness or could support an argument that less procedural fairness was owed in the circumstances. So that's ultimately what these considerations are getting at. So the first most important thing is to know what all five of these considerations are, and then to get to the nuance of how they're 
they can be a little subtly different in um, sort of their effect and how you would weigh them against each other is sort of the next level Baker discussion. But first things first, let's just get what they are. What are the five uh, Baker factors, Baker considerations? So the first one is the nature of the decision. And really what they're getting at here, I don't think it's the best label, but what they're really getting at is how court-like does this decision and process look like? Because the more the legislature has designed something that resembles a court, the more likely it is that they intended full procedures akin to what you would get in court to be available. So you can think about there being such a broad range of administrative decision makers, administrative actors, and it runs the gamut from people sitting at a desk reviewing permit applications, stamping them, not stamping them, making sure form F64 is filled out, you know, checking to make sure that all supporting documentation is there and granting or not granting something. All the way up to something like the Canada Energy Regulator hearing, where it really looks like a courtroom. You know, you have an adversarial system where there's two parties, each advocating for a particular outcome, uh, administrative decision maker sitting in the role of the judge deciding between two parties that are adverse in interest to each other. Sort of the, the broad gamut. So the farther along you are towards it looking like an adversarial court-like process, the more the court's going to assume more procedural protections are required. So for example, one place that you see a quite court-like process is at the Law Society in a discipline hearing. You have a panel of three individuals and you have a counsel representing the Law Society. That's an issue I'll come back to later, the fact the Law Society plays two roles in that process, prosecutor and judge. We'll talk about that next Monday or next Wednesday. Uh, but you have the Law Society uh, you know, deciding, the Law Society prosecuting, and then you have the lawyer, presumably with counsel, defending themselves. Looks very court-like. And so you can imagine if there is a question about whether you're entitled to um, discovery of, say, an expert opinion before that uh, hearing, and that were not to be clear in the law society rules or any other guiding piece of um, regulation, you could imagine a court very easily saying, well, this is a highly court-like process. It's highly prejudicial to have expert opinion evidence they don't have notice of. So I'm going to infer due to the nature of this decision being so court-like that this is going to have a high degree of procedural fairness and this sort of a process is going to be required. So. This one I think is fairly easy to conceptualize once you kind of get a mental picture of the range of administrative decision makers that are out there. And once you start to internalize, okay, there are some that are really court-like and there are some where it really is just a person asking for a benefit or asking for a, a permission to do something and there's nobody on the other side fighting against them. There's no adversarial context. There's no real expectation of discovery. You know, once you get those different um, framings in mind, you want to think, okay, once I'm in that more court-like, the procedural rights are going to follow. And it seems intuitively, I think, to make sense that it would do so. So that's the first Baker consideration. 
how court-like are we looking here? And that's under the category nature of decision. Are there any questions on that one? Yeah. So these factors, we're seeing what level of procedural fairness is owed. Before this, would you be looking to procedural fairness is owed at all? Yes, that's a great point. So if you want to just conceptualize this, your first question is a binary one. Is a duty of procedural fairness owed in the circumstances? And we talked about that test last class, and that's the Cardinal and Kent Institution test of, is this a public authority exercising a power that is not legislative in nature that affects the rights, privileges, or interests of an individual? So you have to get over that hurdle if you want to be in the door at all. Once you're in the door, then you have to determine whether a particular procedural right is owed. And you first can look at statutes and regulations and see if those answer your question. If they don't answer your question, then you may be building arguments off soft law and non-binding um, documents, but you're gonna also be needing to go through the common law to explain what procedural fairness uh, what level of procedural fairness the courts should assume the legislature intended the executive to, to give you. And when you're doing that, when you're de determining, you know, what's the common law going to presume is the minimal standards of fairness necessary in the circumstance, that's when you're looking at these factors. Yeah, you would go through, well, yes, you would go through statutes and regulations certainly first, because if they answer your question, they answer your question. Soft law, you sort of have to tie in with the Baker factors, because I'll talk that more when I come back down to legitimate expectations. It's where, this is where things get a bit fuzzy, and where you can maybe draw categories in different ways is perhaps what makes it fuzzy. Like, it's helpful to talk about soft law in uh, opposition to statutes and regulations because it can look quite similar. But really you want to think about soft law as sort of falling into this broader concept of if I don't know uh, because the legislature hasn't explicitly told me through statutes or regulations what's going to happen here, what are the full range of things I have to consider? That's going to be guided by the common law. Baker, Baker, you know, you could think of is the common law approach. And soft law will tie into that common law baker. Okay, thank you. That, I kind of wish I had said that at the outset, um, but hopefully we're, we're still following along. Um, this framing does get a little bit tricky to make sure we're all right at the same place. But to be totally clear, we're in these baker considerations, and this is how the court is going to say what is the minimal standards of fairness that the law requires that such that if you didn't provide the standard of fairness, you know, I'm going to assume the legislature never intended to let you act in the absence of that level of fairness. Okay, so that's a great question. I'm glad you asked it because it resituates us in the bigger project of what we're doing. Any other questions about this factor, this consideration of how court-like does it look? All right, so let's move on. The next one is one that I've touched on uh, a fair amount previously, so hopefully it's familiar. And it's the nature of the statutory scheme. And I'm going to come back to, you know, if you can fit um, statute and, and regulations that directly address a question of this factor. Just put a pin in that for now. 
But really what this nature of statutory scheme focuses on in the jurisprudence is the question of, is this the end of the road within the statute itself? Or is there a further right to review, appeal, reconsideration within the statutory scheme itself? So we talked about that, I think maybe three times now, when I was referring to the Workers' Compensation Board and its relationship to the Workers' Compensation Appeal Tribunal, WCAT. But you remember me saying the Workers' Compensation Board is designed to be really high volume. We're going to get a whole bunch of things. We're going to do them pretty quickly. And we're going to uh, hopefully get the answer right most of the time or almost all the time. But there's going to be a appeal tribunal that'll take a more exacting look if people feel that they haven't gotten the right answer at the first level. In that circumstance, the nature of the statutory scheme would suggest that before the workers' compensation branch, there very well could be a lower degree of procedural fairness owed because the statutory scheme envisions a check on the process here, envisions giving you more process later if necessary. So you could challenge the procedure before the workers' compensation branch even though you have the right to go to the Workers' Compensation Appeal Tribunal, you might ultimately say, you know, I have a right to a fair process at all levels. And even though WCAT may have, you know, complied with their obligations, the Workers' Compensation Branch had a completely unfair process that deserves a remedy. I can come back to that type of a question later, but just take that as a given. You could potentially challenge that because you're entitled to fairness all the way up throughout the entire process. So if you were to say workers' compensation branch deciding a really important issue and they, they didn't even let me um, you know, have an oral hearing at all, they, didn't, they just decided on the basis of pieces of paper. Well, the court may say, well, but the workers' compensation branch wasn't the last place you could get an oral hearing. You were entitled to go to WCAT and you could ask for an oral hearing there. So I'm not going to impose an obligation on the workers' compensation branch to do oral hearings all the time, slow up their ability to be the sort of quick, high-volume tribunal, because the scheme gives you more procedure elsewhere. So if you have a right to reconsideration, a right to further process, a right to some kind of appeal within the statutory scheme itself, that could tend to point to the legislature being okay with less procedural protections at the first level because you're going to get more down the line. Does that dynamic make sense? Yeah. Yeah, that does not include statutory appeals. I think that the phrasing I'm going to use going forward to be totally clear on this, so I'm going to draw a distinction between statutory appeals and internal appeals. Statutory appeal, you're just going to remember, goes to the courts. And the statutory appeal is is um, paired really closely with judicial review. They're both instances where you're going to the judiciary to oversee the executive. Internal appeals. are instances where the executive 
has allowed another executive actor to oversee a decision. And so um, if I mess up the, the terms, uh, I apologize going forward because it is a bit confusing because internal appeals arise pursuant to statute, so it's easy to, to um, confuse the two, but they are really fundamentally different concepts. And it just comes down to my, you know, my three circles doc diagram. A, um, a statutory appeal is the judiciary being invited to oversee the executive. An internal appeal is the executive having something designed within its decision-making processes you know, to, to provide some other route to ensure that they're getting the right answer before you have to go to the courts. Hopefully that concept is, is clear. Yeah, okay. All right. Um, thanks. I feel like we're clearing up a lot of little loose ends here today, so I'm, thank you all for bearing with me. Um, okay, so the nature of the statutory scheme, the big consideration you want to think of here is this question of, is this the end of the line before I go to the courts? Or is there some avenue to get more process within the statutory scheme itself? And if it's the former, I got to go to the courts, well, then they expect you to have been given every right that's going to be coming to you at this point. If you still have other places you can go internally, they say, well, don't, don't complain because you haven't gotten it yet, because maybe you get this thing later. It's this right you want later. So the thing I want to come back to with respect to nature of statutory scheme is sometimes you'll see decisions that get into, well, what do the statutes and regulations say? Do they provide a full answer to this procedural right you're claiming? And they do that within this Baker consideration. I wouldn't say that's wrong, but I also wouldn't say it's the most robust and coherent way to approach this analysis. And that's because if the statute or regulation gives you an answer, yes, you get an oral hearing. No, you don't get an oral hearing. Yes, you get a right to cross-examination. No, you don't. There, there's no way that these other factors have anything to do with that ultimate outcome. That's determinative. You have to follow the statute because what we're talking about here you know, is common law. And common law is always subordinate to statute, can be overridden by statute. So you could think of this as an opportunity for sort of a double check. Remind yourself, make sure that there isn't an answer in the statutory scheme directly. But really the most robust analysis starts with the statute and regulations. And then in the face of uncertainty, looks at things like soft law, common law, these sort of questions to figure out um, you know, what are the minimal standards the courts are going to demand? But if the legislature has demanded a minimal standard, you've got your answer. So it gets confused in the jurisprudence. It's not wrong to say that this could fall under this factor, this consideration, but I think it's the less sort of um, coherent and efficient sort of framing to attacking these questions. Does that make sense? Yeah, okay. All right. Um, I recognize the time. Um, I'd like to get through importance, and then I think I'll do legitimate expectation and procedural choices next, because these three sort of form a category, and these two form sort of separate categories. Um, and the importance is not a hard one to talk about. Of course, it's just the level of importance of the decision to the individual affected. 
and it recognizes that there's a broad range of different administrative decisions ranging from things that are the absolutely um, the highest importance to a person's ability to carry on in a profession of their choice, live where they choose, you know, be with their family, stay in a country. These sorts of things are at the high end of importance, all the way down to, you know, very menial things. You know, I want to get a, a a liquor license so that I can host a party on my on my block. I want to have a block party. Well, you don't get the liquor license. Okay, it's not that big of a deal fishing permits, these sorts of things. So there's a broad array, and it really is a comparative sort of thing. Um, I may say, oh, it's, it's so important I get this liquor license. It's my daughter's wedding. My goodness, I can't imagine having it without you know, being able to serve wine. Um, well, sure, it's important to you, but it's not your job. It's not staying in Canada. So you have to see these things in, um, you know, in a proper context of the range uh, of what can be truly important. And the things that have been found to be at the top really are these things that are you know, inherent to your ability to, to live and work uh, you know, as you choose in your community. So things that affect your employment, where you live, uh, um, and your, you know, your rights with your family. These are the sorts of things that have been found to be the highest importance. And the more important a decision is for the individual affected, the more the court's going to presume the legislature intended there to be significant procedural protections with respect to that decision, which makes sense, I think. Any questions on that one? All right, let's take the break now and come back at 11.40, and then we'll tackle the last two. All right, uh, hi everybody. We're gonna get back, get back to it. Um, I had a couple of good questions at the break. I'm gonna touch on those after I've gone through the rest of these factors, just because they were both big picture. Just make sure you tell me exactly where we are in the overall analysis questions. I want to make sure we're on the same page. But first, I want to get through these factors. Uh, give a little pitch, I think, for why they're sort of poorly named, but sort of well thought out at the same time. Uh, and then I'll just, you know, kind of conclude our Baker discussion, both with the application, as well as by sort of reiterating where we are really big picture in your overall framework here. Um, so, got these first three factors, you can sort of group them together because these ones really tend to be factors or considerations that very clearly move you in one direction or the other, up or down the uh, sort of the, the spectrum of the potential procedural rights that could be owed. The other two factors um, are things that, that can bear on the analysis, but are a little bit less uh, directly going to be clearly every time suggestive of more or less fairness. And I, I think hopefully that makes sense once I explain them. So legitimate expectations, again, this doctrine comes in as a Baker factor, Baker consideration. And again, it's just a question of has the tribunal led you to believe that a particular process is going to be followed or that a particular substantive result is going to occur and if so, there may be a duty of enhanced fairness to follow that process, even if it wasn't otherwise going to be required, 
or to give you more process if the substantive decision is going to change. So that's the, the doctrine of legitimate expectations in a nutshell. Where it becomes a bit of a strange fit in this Baker list is that it can supersede everything else if it's present. The courts can find if there has been a legitimate expectation created and it hasn't been met, this will be unfair and they'll do so without looking at any of the other factors. They'll treat it at times as a freestanding duty, a freestanding problem you can invoke. And that's where it gets fuzzy as to, well, how does it fit within this list of five Baker considerations? And there's been a number of decisions, or sorry, uh, academic articles talking about this, criticizing the framework for this purpose. So what I want you to think of in your mind is legitimate expectations require a high degree of clarity before they're going to arise. A legitimate expectation needs to be clear, needs to be created by a representation that is clear, unequivocal, and unqualified. It's not saying we're probably going to give you an oral hearing or you know, you might be getting a good outcome next week. It's, hey, you're going to get an oral hearing here. Hey, you're going to get a, a good outcome. Could be coming from the tribunal directly, from a member, from a representative. Could be coming from published guidelines online. You know, soft law documents could give rise to a legitimate expectation. But if you can get over that clear, unequivocal, and unqualified hump, and you show it wasn't provided, you very well may be able to argue that completely as a standalone problem and get a result on that basis without the court mentioning the other Baker factors. And the Supreme Court of Canada does this. So that makes it distinct from the other factors, which really do balance against each other. This one can override everything. The other thing that makes it distinct is it doesn't swing you sort of up or down a spectrum of how much rights are going to be owed in that if there's no legitimate expectation created, that doesn't tend to suggest less procedural rights are owed. It's just a neutral factor. It's just not here. There wasn't legitimate expectations created. So it's situing, being situated within Baker, within these five considerations, is a little bit confusing, I think. What you want to think, though, is that it is an important doctrine. It is in Baker, so you're going to want to, when you're going through Baker with a court or in an exam, say, you know, this is one of the five Baker considerations. And you're going to want to be able to identify where a legitimate expectation may arise and on what basis it may arise. 
And here's where I just want to be, you know, really, really clear. I don't think I've been all that clear yet on what the real test is and how you have to just, um, you know, how you would frame an answer on legitimate expectations. And you want to say, I need a representation that's clear, unambiguous, and unqualified. Clear, unambiguous, and unqualified. It can go to procedure or substance. It can arise from published guidance, or it can arise from a direct representation from a member or representative of a tribunal. And if it's made, I may be entitled to a procedural right if it's not followed. If all of that made sense, then that really is the doctrine of legitimate expectations. You can visit it in Baker, but I don't want you to get confused by it being sort of different in kind in how it interacts with the other considerations, which tend to push and pull against each other a bit. This is either here or not here, and if it's here, it very well may be a complete answer to whether something's due and owing. Does that make sense? All right. So the final Baker consideration is procedural choices of the tribunal. And this is another one, I'm gonna come back to this point, that I think is poorly named but it's not that tricky to get your head around when you, um, when you delve into it. And well, I don't, am I on? No. And what this, what this recognizes is that statutes quite often should be reasonably read as showing the legislature intended to leave the question of designing the procedure to the tribunal. And it may be that the exact right that you're claiming is explicitly contemplated as something that the legislature says is within the tribunal's discretion. The statute may say, the tribunal may at its discretion hold an oral hearing. The tribunal may at its discretion allow cross-examination of witnesses. The tribunal may at its discretion design its own rules of practice and procedure to guide its hearings. It could be really broad like that. So what you have to think is that coming back to the court's fundamental role of thinking, what's the scope of jurisdiction the executive was intended to have? When you see the legislature asking the executive to really be the master and take charge of this procedure and design it itself, the courts have said, well, that means that the legislature seems to think there's some good reason to give this, this question to this body 
Maybe they have expertise in the area and understand what procedural design is going to be most efficient or most effective. And so when that's happened, this last Baker consideration is kind of a reminder to the courts to step back a little bit, to give a little bit of deference to the tribunal, to let them design their own process and not to impose something on them as being necessary. It's not going to overrule all the other factors. If everything else points to, my goodness, you had to have an oral hearing here. The fact that the legislature said you may hold an oral hearing but not must, that's not going to overrule everything else. But if the other factors are kind of tossing this way and that, you're not totally sure, and the fact that this body has some expertise in the area and has thought this through and has decided that this is not the type of circumstance that requires an oral hearing, this might tip it, tip it to, to not being judicially imposed. Yeah. Um, just to clarify, are, is this kind of procedural choices given to the tribunal or is it procedural choices made or is it both? Okay, that is great. What it says in the, 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 the factors named sort of procedural choices of the tribunal. It really should be procedural choices given to the tribunal because that's where the focus really is and really makes sense. And that's exactly the point that I wanted to make when I come back to this sort of uh, idea that a lot of these factors or considerations are poorly named for getting at what they really are. And that's exactly one of the ones that I wanted to talk about. So the fact alone that the tribunals made a procedural choice is completely unremarkable. Of course they did. You know, every procedure that's offered or not offered was a choice of the tribunal in one way or the other, even a choice by just omission that we never did this. Well, there's some degree of choice there. So the fact the tribunals made procedural choices, who cares? The fact the legislature has explicitly contemplated sort of a broad discretion over procedure. That's what can be relevant. All right. Um, so maybe I will move into this sort of recapping these by offering what I might say could be better names for each. Uh, and then I'm going to just take that step back and resituate us in the sort of broad overall scheme of what we're doing here maybe with the framing of on an exam, how you might tackle a procedural fairness problem. So, where's my, oh, whatever. Um, the first, so the first thing I suppose I can, I made the mistake. Let's rename this to considerations. Because factors tends to suppose that they're all sort of co-equal factors pushing against each other, whereas considerations kind of gets at the idea these are broad categories of concepts that can bear on procedural fairness questions. And the first one, nature of decision, you might rethink or rename in your head how court-like. Is it a very court-like process that's described? Or is it a purely administrative type procedure that looks nothing like a court? 
and the how court-like is often going to bear down to how adverse is there an adversarial process with the decision maker in the middle. So first factor you might want to really think of is how court-like. The second factor, nature of the statutory scheme, you want to think really boils down to this question of, is this the end of the line within the statute? Or is there an ability to go get more procedure within the statutory scheme itself before running off to the courts? Third factor is properly named. Fourth factor you want to think is properly named, but is something of an anomaly. Because the absence of legitimate expectations doesn't suggest less procedure protections are owed. And the existence of legitimate expectations can be a complete answer to the question and can be determinative. So it's a consideration that can bear on the procedure that's due and owing, but it's less of a sort of push and pull factor. The final procedural choices of the tribunal could be better named procedural discretion assigned to the tribunal. And that's that question, has the legislature demonstrated that they really want this tribunal to have some discretion to formulate its own procedures to you know, be able to effectively discharge its statutory obligations? If so, the courts should be reluctant to interfere and to say something's required. So those are the five considerations. Hopefully, what each one is makes some sense. Undoubtedly, how they all work together and how this fits into your broader overall scheme of admin law is a little bit nebulous, especially because I don't think I've done the best job explaining it today. So that's why I want to take a step back right now and just say, okay, in the context of a potential exam or, you know, exams are really examples of how you formulate a legal argument for your client. So in that context, how would this all come to bear within this procedural fairness world? So I, um, I'm going to erase my, my outline. I don't think we need to, to look at this right now. We'll be going to Bergeron briefly next, and we probably won't get to um, Kretschian today, but that's fine. It fits well with the bias next week. And so you want to think on my exam, I'm going to have a procedural fairness issue. You are, for sure. It's a major part of this course. And you want to think to yourself, there's going to be something in this fact pattern that raises a question of whether this person was treated fairly by this tribunal. So the first thing you want to make sure you have clear in your mind is the difference between a procedural problem and a substantive problem. Is this a question of some problem with how the decision maker got to the decision, what was before them, what they considered? 
or is it a problem with the actual reasoning that led to the decision itself? If it's the latter, it's substantive. You know, the reasoning's a problem or the decision itself is just outside the bounds of what you could possibly justify. Those are substantive concerns, but how we got there, that's the world of procedure. So the first thing you have to ask yourself, is there a duty of fairness owed to my client? And so what Cart got, um, Canton Cardinal Institution says is that tribunals owe duties of fairness. And every tribunal that's a public authority that's making a decision not of a legislative nature will owe a duty of fairness to people whose rights or interests are affected by the decision. So is there a duty of fairness owed? Yes or no? If no, well then there's no basis to make any procedural fairness right uh, arguments. I would suggest on the exam, even if you think there might not be a duty of fairness owed, you might want to still go through if I'm wrong on that, here's what the procedural fairness framework would look like. Second thing you want to determine, what rights is your client asking for? What rights are at issue? And it could be an oral hearing, a right to cross-examine, right to um, discovery of, of evidence. Uh, you know, any number of different rights we've talked about. But you want to identify what the rights we're talking about are. Because then in the third thing, you want to see to the statutes or regulations provide an answer. provide an answer as to whether or not your client was entitled to that procedural protection. It may say, indeed, an oral hearing is required. It may say an oral hearing is not required. You look for an answer there. If you, you may have four different rights your client wants. There may be an answer to, the, to one of them in the statutes or regulations, and there may be uncertainty on the other ones. In the face of uncertainty, you have to move to the common law. And this is where you're engaging these Baker factors and you're engaging these Baker factors to decide the question of whether your client will be entitled at common law to the procedure that you've identified as at issue. This is all based on the idea that the courts are gonna presume that the legislature never intended the executive to act unfairly 
and these are this is the framework they're going to use to decide if what happened is indeed unfair. And this comes back in the Bergeron case, but the real question is, was this fair? Did this meet the minimal standards of fairness? Not is this the best design process I could imagine? Not is this how I, the judge, would have designed it if I were the head of the tribunal or if I had the regulation-making power to enact rules or if I was a legislator? Not, it's not optimal. It's does this meet minimal standards of fairness? That's what the Baker factors are getting at. That's what the common law is getting at. And when you're in the common law, you then go through these five factors, these five considerations, and you want to address how each one of these bears on the question of whether the particular procedural right at issue ought to be provided. Now, some of these things, you may have multiple things that your client's after. I want a right to cross-examine witnesses. I want a right to discovery. You may have to deal with each one sort of separately as you go through the Baker factors, because it's possible that a factor could point towards one of those being necessary and not the other. So you want to identify, it's not like you go through these factors and identify a level of procedural fairness in the abstract. You want to keep considering it in terms of what is your client actually after in terms of a procedural right they say ought to have been afforded. You know, I talked about the most extreme procedural right, which is an opportunity to review a decision and comment on it before it's binding, review a draft decision. That is a right that's afforded in a lot of regulated contexts. You know, here's my draft reasons. Tell me if you like them. Would a judge ever do that? Like, obviously not, right? So how court-like of a process are you in? Does that really get at that type of a question? Well, it's kind of above and beyond, outside this court-like or not court-like, because this is something that's not even um, you know, a, a court wouldn't even do, potentially. But you may have a legitimate expectation that that's going to happen because they said it was going to happen. You may have extreme level of importance, maybe end of the line of the statutory scheme with no conceivable uh, you know, right to appeal, or even maybe the, the matter just gets finally resolved that day because there's some thing in the real world that happens that can't be taken back once that decision is made. You can't even really go to the courts. These are types of things that would have everything else pointing to the highest level of fairness. So it's what I'm getting at here is with every right that's being claimed, you know, you have to think about how each factor weighs on that right individually. In your exam, I would not recommend going through multiple Baker analyses for each right that's at issue, but in your discussion of each right that's claimed, cross-examination, disclosure, these types of things, uh, you may want to note if any of these resonate differently for one right as opposed to the other. So you're taking the things that you're, the rights at issue, you're seeing if they're in the statutes or regulations, then you're looking at the Baker common law to see if the common law demands those rights be provided. Going through these five factors, these five considerations, 
hopefully you're sort of explaining what each one means and uh, how the names potentially could be misleading, but this is the, the substance of it. And then how you might weigh these different factors against each other, what conclusion you come to on an exam in the real world is subject to a broad range of reasonable outcomes. I'm not going to say because one student thinks that these factors point towards an oral hearing being necessary and one student thinks they don't quite get there, that one's right and one's wrong. That's just not realistically how it works. Uh, different people could see it differently and how these factors are applied to any given question is often unpredictable. But I do want to see you try. I want to see you go through, say these are the factors, say these are the ones that I think will be the most important or kind of win the day here, and then come to a conclusion, yes, I think that an oral hearing likely is to be issued or to be ordered, or no, I think it, it ought not to be um, something the court would likely order on judicial review that type of a, of a final conclusion. Any questions on that? Okay, so hopefully that helps her situate where we are. Now let's go back to Baker and just see how these factors were applied to Ms. Baker's case. I know we're spending a lot of time on this case. We may not get to much else today, but this really is a crucially important case, and I'm glad we've taken the time to kind of work through our framing, and we will accelerate a bit next week um, when things get a little bit more easy because we're just fitting things into a framework we already have established as opposed to trying to draw up a procedural fairness framework in our heads. So in Baker, the court goes through the five factors and says, well, some of these point towards there being more procedural protections owed and some of these point towards less procedural protections owed. And they apply these five factors to the question that Ms. Baker said what right did she really want? An oral hearing, right? She said, I want, a, I want an oral hearing. Is an oral hearing necessary? How do we do it? We go through these five factors to see if they point towards more or less procedural fairness owed with a view towards answering the question, is an oral hearing required? They said, how court-like is this? They said, not very court-like at all. This is not an adversarial context. This is an important decision, but it's not being made in an adversarial arena. Uh, there's no person who's um, you know, supposed to be arguing on the other side of Miss Baker. Rather, there's supposed to be an application to a neutral and partial decision maker. Now, query whether Mr. Lorenz you know, was making it a bit adversarial, but that's a different question that comes up in bias. So they say this factor, this consideration, points to less procedural rights owed, makes it less likely an oral hearing would be required because this isn't a court-like process. Second factor, nature of the statutory scheme. Oh, we're going the other way now, okay? This is the end of the line. There's no internal appeal, no internal review. You go to the court or you're done. That pushes towards more fairness being owed, more likely that an oral hearing was required. Importance. This is the factor that probably is the, the biggest push towards an oral hearing being required here because we are at the very high end of importance. But as we'll see, it doesn't quite get there for the Supreme Court of Canada because they say legitimate expectations is a neutral factor. They, they identify it as a neutral factor. There's nothing to give rise to legitimate expectations here. And then they point out that the legislature 
has assigned a broad discretion over procedure to this tribunal. And the court's reluctant to come in and second guess that choice and to require an oral hearing here. And they point to the fact that the design of the, the nature of the decision and the procedural you know, choices factor, that they both militate against that outcome. So despite there being really two factors pointing towards more procedure, two factors pointing towards a little less procedural fairness owed, one factor neutral, you know, despite or because of that fact, I should probably say, Ms. Baker didn't get over the hump of the court ordering an oral hearing. So she loses on that ground. Now, the next, and that's where the Baker factors are applied in Baker. We're going to see it applied elsewhere in other cases, so we're not leaving this, these factors at all. But I want to round out Baker with the two sort of stray issues that arise with reasons and how it introduces bias that we come back to next class. Um, so the Supreme Court of Canada goes on to consider the reasons. And this is an interesting part of the decision because the court previously had said that um, it was, or they hadn't been clear at least, that there was a procedural right to reasons that could be invoked as a grounds to overturn a, a judicial or an administrative decision. Uh, a right to reasons wasn't a standalone right that was clearly established. In Baker, they said no. There can be circumstances where the impact of the individual are such that fairness demands reasons be required. And I don't want to spend too much time on this because we um, will see it evolve in the Vavilov case where the right to reasons was expanded considerably. So this isn't the final word on when reasons are required. But what's interesting in Baker is that they did find reasons to have been provided despite you remember that letter being so terse and just you know one sentence saying you don't have grounds for humanitarian compassionate relief. What they said is, we reviewed the file and we found that note to file from, from Lorenz and there's nothing in this suggesting that these weren't the reasons that this uh, humanitarian compassionate ground was rejected. So we are going to infer that those are the reasons. You were given this. You know the reason why you were denied this. We're not going to make them say the reasons that you were denied this. We're going to go on the basis of what we can infer the reasons were. Now, it's an interesting jump because Ms. Baker might say, hold on, that's there really wasn't reasons. This is something I had to ask for. I wasn't provided this proactively. This isn't what the rule of law would seem to require in terms of transparency and intelligibility. And this is disappointing. And I lost on you know, the fact that there were no reasons provided when I really didn't get reasons. You know, We're inferring this guy's notes are the reasons. This is crazy. But you want to think twice before you would stand up and be really emphatic on that argument. Because me as a lawyer, when I see those Lorenz reasons, what do I think? Like, all right, these are good reasons for me to argue need to be overturned. What happens if the Supreme Court had said, go issue reasons? Would they have looked like that? You know, certainly not. They would have found some other reason to, to say that she's denied. It would have 
it would have looked somewhat reasonable, probably. So by inferring reasons by looking at the record, you actually might get a more true representation of what motivated a tribunal than you do if you were to demand after the fact they go back and construct some reasons knowing there's judicial oversight coming to them. So that's just a minor factor, but something to keep in mind is that sometimes you want to be realistic about strategically what's going to get your client to the ultimate best outcome. And for Ms. Baker, the ultimate best outcome of all of these was to win on bias, for sure. Winning on bias has a special sort of benefit associated with it I'll talk about in a second. So the Supreme Court of Canada says you lose on oral hearing, you lose on reasons, but you win on bias because these reasons reveal a decision maker who was not impartial, but was rather basing their decision on prejudice and stereotypes, which I think is pretty easy to accept given the, the language that's in those reasons. Um, not spending too much time on bias because that's next week. But one thing that's interesting about bias is that the outcome of a finding a tribunal was biased is the thing gets sent back for redetermination, but it has to be decided by a different decision maker. So you can't assign it to the same person who's already found to be biased, which is quite nice. You get a fresh person to have a look at it, and that can make all the difference to your client because people are very motivated to not accept that they were unfair and that led to a wrong decision the first time around. They're very likely the second time around to say, okay, I've now given you the procedure you needed, but I'm still coming to the same decision because you have to admit that you were really wrong if you admit that I was unfair and that led to the wrong decision. So you get motivated decision makers by kicking them out through a bias argument. You may get your client a lot farther along the way to the actual outcome they want. So that's the, you know, what happened in Baker. Are there any questions? Yeah. Yeah, so bias and bias we're coming back to. Reasons um, is will also come back to in Vavilov. Uh, reasons is a binary. Either you're entitled to reasons or not entitled to reasons. When you're entitled to reasons has changed because of Vavilov. So we'll come back to that. And when we do our overall review at the end, it'll look like this, except it'll cover the whole board over two days, basically. And you'll see where the, the reasons question fits in. But we don't quite have the full framework to get there quite yet. Okay, so I do with the last three minutes, I honestly think that I could cover the Bergeron case more or less in these three minutes, what you need to know about it, so that we could then just jump into bias next class. The Bergeron case is on a very limited and discrete question that gets a lot more attention than it really, I think, deserves. And this is the question of what standard of review do you apply to questions of procedural fairness? What deference do you owe um, you know, to a tribunal when you're assessing a question of fairness? Some courts have said it's correctness on questions, these questions of procedural fairness. The tribunal has to be correct. Some people say it's reasonableness. There's some room of deference to allow for the procedural choices of the tribunal kind of see how both these ideas have some, some weight behind them. The answer, I think, is really simple and straightforward, although it's been a little bit controversial and it's still not clearly articulated by the Supreme Court of Canada. 
The best articulation is in actually dissenting reasons in a case called Abramitz. We're coming back to, and I'll come back to the point then, which is why I feel comfortable dealing with it quickly here. But what the court in Bergeron says, and Abramitz concludes is also right, is really it's not super helpful to think about standards of review in this context, because the ultimate question before the court is, was this fair? Was this a fair process? And this gets back to the idea that we're dealing with just minimal standards of fairness. It's not whatever would be the most fair process we could possibly imagine. And that's why the idea of correctness on questions of fairness gets misleading because it starts to sound like you're inviting the court to second guess procedural choices broadly and to say what they would think would be the correct procedural framework would be. That's not what they want you to do. That's not what the courts really want you, the other judges to do. They want you to say, okay, there's a minimal standard. You fall below that. I can't presume the legislature intended that you could act while being that unfair. So you've acted outside your jurisdiction. So I need to know if you've maintained that minimal standard. If you have acted below that minimal standard, it's unfair. So the standard of review has been articulated as fairness. Is it fair or is it not fair? You could also frame it as correct on the question of whether it's fair, but not whether it's the most fair or the ultimate uh, design of a tribunal. The question of deference fits in that framework because there's different ways to get to a fair process. Maybe an oral hearing is one way to get someone's full testimony, but maybe having a lengthy written argument with discovery and other rights gets you there too. So there's some room for deference because either one of those might not fall below that level of fairness. So the just high level takeaway, standard of review for questions of procedural fairness, I like the phrase is fairness. Is it fair or not fair? Any questions on that? All right, let's leave it there. We are coming back to that point. I'll touch on the language in Abramitz, and um, I may quickly touch on Bergeron in the start of next class. But really, we're going to get into bias next class. The reading is somewhat lengthy and is somewhat of a, a tome on bias. I'm sorry for the, maybe it goes a bit deep into the forest, but there's a lot of good ideas that we pick out of there. So I think we'll still get some, a lot of value out of that reading. So that's for Wednesday, and uh, yeah, I look forward to seeing you then.